everyone. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast. Today, we're continuing our conversation about adaptive, personalized learning. On June 14th, Juan Barone, senior economist in the World Bank's Education Global Practice, hosted a World Bank EdTech Podcast episode with WIS Education and Educational Initiatives about their experience running companies focused on adaptive, personalized learning. They discussed how to gain political will, access the technology, and implement programs. You can listen to this episode via the link in our notes. On this episode, Juan Barone speaks with the EdTech Hub, a joint initiative of the World Bank, UNICEF, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to do academic research about the role of technology in education. Juan speaks with Tom Kay, Global Country Engagement Lead at the EdTech Hub, Hani Mazari, Pakistan and Bangladesh Country Lead at the EdTech Hub, and Diego Angelo Dinola, World Bank Senior Economist. Diego joins us to share lessons from the World Bank's experience building adaptive, personalized learning programs in Ecuador. You can learn more about the EdTech Hub at edtechhub.org. Hi, everyone. My name is Juan Baron. I'm a senior economist at the World Bank. And today we have several guests that we're very excited about. We will be focusing on adaptive learning, what is the available evidence, the opportunities that we have for research and for implementation work. We have Tom and Hani from the EdTech Hub, and we have Diego from the bank. Tom, can you please introduce yourself? Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Tom Kay, and I'm EdTech Hub's Global Lead for Country Engagement. Lovely to be here with you, Juan. Thanks for having us. Hani, over to you. Hi, everyone. My name's Hani Mazari, and I'm the Digital Personalized Learning Focal Person at EdTech Hub. Diego? Thank you, Juan. My name is Diego Angel. I'm a senior economist at the Education Global Practice, and I'm working on skills, a higher education Tibet and Eptic. Thank you, everyone, and thanks for being here. The first thing that probably we should share, uh, Hani, can you remind us of the working definition of digital personalized learning or adaptive learning, that definition, just for our audience to understand what we're talking about? Absolutely. So I think just the fact that you had two different phrases, digital personalized learning and adaptive learning, means that there's still a lot of discussions to be had to have a universal understanding of what digital personalized learning means. But the way we understand digital personalized learning at the hub, and similarly to the way the World Bank understands adaptive learning, is essentially the ways in which technology enables or supports learning. And this can be based on particular characteristics of relevance or importance to learners. So there's a range of personalization that can be used for instance, modifying the pace of learning in a way that a learner can choose how and when they want to learn. And within this range, we have responsive systems and then we have adaptive systems on the other end. Responsive systems may help enable learners through a personalized interface or through tailoring their own instructional material, while adaptive systems actively scaffold learning by adapting content delivery depending on how the user performs or engages with the content itself. Thank you, Hani. Hani and Tom, what is the EdTech Hub? Why are you guys interested in adaptive learning? Thanks, Juan. That's a, a great question. The EdTech Hub is an eight-year program that was commissioned by UKA, the Foreign Content Development Office, the World Bank, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 
We started in April 2020 as a, a program, and now our, our reason for being is to essentially generate more evidence about what works, for whom, in which context, and why when it comes to use of education technology. But then our second part is about evidence uptake and making sure that that research ends up in the hands of policymakers, decision makers, and actors in the education space to make sure that they can make great decisions about the use of technology. We have five thematic areas that we're focused on, particularly in the edtech space. One of those is digital personalized learning alongside edtech for girls, edtech to encourage participation in school, edtech and its use in the collection and analysis and use of data for decision-making, and edtech for enhancing teacher professional development. So the way that we contextualize these focus areas is that we try to focus on specific countries. So we have some engagements outside of that. The five countries we work in are Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Kenya, and Tanzania. And we work closely with stakeholders to ensure that they get the evidence they need to make the decisions around cost-effective approaches to overall improve the quality of learning and improve the access to learning. So... While I was working in Pakistan a few years ago, I'd frequently visit low resource schools. I was sitting in a classroom with sixth grade students, and they were repeating three words in Urdu and English, girl, boy, and school, again and again and again. And the teacher didn't have the pedagogical skills nor the subject matter knowledge to really contextualize these words, nor did she, was she able to see if her classroom of over 50 students understood. So now where does the technology come in, right? Um, when we were working there, we weren't working on implementing an advanced DPL product with really advanced artificial intelligence, nor was it personalized at the student level. But through the tool we were working with, students would watch a curriculum aligned video. And then after that, they used clickers to perform a formative assessment and so it didn't really matter how many children were in the classroom because teachers could use these individual scores after the class to identify learning gaps and see where individual students were struggling. So while products with more advanced adaptability are interesting, I'm really interested on, in how technology can personalize delivery in contexts like these where teachers are burdened to manage multi-grade classrooms with huge numbers of students or different low resource environments. So for me, the real interest is around how technology can support teaching at the right level. And one piece that comes to my mind is something EdTech Hub commissioned to a research institute in Pakistan called SDPI, in which we used WhatsApp to deliver a teaching at the right level intervention. So to me, there are different ranges and tools in which we can use technology to support personalized learning. And I want to bring the discussion to Diego. Why are you so passionate about adaptive learning? I became passionate about adaptive learning after using it with my kids. I've been telling this too in different forums. But when I came back after a post overseas, I put my son into school and he said that I cannot follow up my math classes. I am sitting there and I'm not understanding. So I started to try to help him. The first thing I did was to get a tutor, but after many classes and spending a lot of money, it wasn't helping him a lot. I heard about MindSpark and about other applications that were trying to support kids to remediate and to close gaps, especially in mathematics. And I started to use it 
and it worked miracles. After six months of using the platform, he said, look, this is helping me a lot. I'm finally getting to know what is going on in the classroom. And since then, I started actually to use it with my other kids. And now it's, it's, it's being used for a different purpose. Right now, my kid is in sixth grade. I've been taking this type of software for math in eighth grade. So basically breaking the age level paradigm and actually really helping kids really get a passion for math. Given that home experience, I really became fan of the technology of its potential. And I'm trying to add a, a, in, in middle and low income countries. Thank you, Diego. No, that's great. Let's move into the evidence. I read this paper titled Disrupting Education, Experimental Evidence on Technology Aided Instruction in India. And that paper was a very pioneering paper, I believe, especially for economies, for people who work in, in development, because it used a very strong methodology, a randomized controlled trial, to look at how one adaptive platform, in that case, MindSpark, which we have had in other podcasts, potentially support the learning of math in middle grade in an after-school program. That paper is now published in the American Economic Review, and it's one of the papers that really got me excited as one of the, maybe the closest we would get to a silver bullet if we could figure out connectivity, if we could figure out hardware, software, procurement, and other things. That paper showed great, great results in very short periods of time. And the question that I had after seeing that is, okay, what is this platform? What other platforms exist? What's the research? And can we do this as part of public systems? And to me, from reading that paper, the, the very big lesson is, could this work in public systems? I want to ask our colleagues, Hani, perhaps, to start with, with what is the evidence that you guys have been looking at what has excited you from the literature on, on really jumping into, into, you know, adding to the evidence, but also sharing and supporting countries through the work that you do. Over to you, honey. Thanks, Juan. I think there are a few things that we can start by unpacking what we get out of digital personalized learning or personal adaptive learning, whatever you want to call it. What we're trying to do is essentially improve the quality of learning through supporting teaching at the right level. One thing that really fascinated me was the whole connection between facilitating that in person, where teaching in the, at the right level has been shown to be effective through a range of short bursts of activities, or even for hours a day over a longer period. And the fact that it could be open to being facilitated by commu community volunteers or teachers, or, you know, and that it can be organized either in school or out of school. The whole flexible approach of instructing at the right level and the fact that this has a significant effect on learning outcomes is something that really fascinated me. And when you look at, you know, low income contexts where many teachers don't have the pedagogical, they don't have the pedagogical skills to facilitate that, that's when it really becomes interesting to me on how technology can be used to support teachers on improving those learning outcomes in students. So there are a few research pieces that come to mind. And I think one seminal piece at EdTech Hub has been a meta-analysis on digital personalized learning. And in this meta-analysis, we've reviewed, I think it was 16 randomized control trials. And we found that overall, tech supported personalized learning and had a statistically significant positive effect size And we found that the more personalized the approach, the greater impact it had on learners. 
So while we know that teaching at the right level is helpful and that first digital personalized learning can improve learning outcomes, what we're really trying to scope in on is whether this can be useful and scalable at the same time. So some studies that we've been involved in have been, for example, in Pakistan, we tried a WhatsApp intervention during the pandemic in which we tried to teach at the right level through, through WhatsApp. And in Kenya, we're testing, we're testing this through SMS messages to see whether this can be tailored to improve learning amongst girls. And while we're considering these low-tech mediums, we're also testing high-tech solutions through low-cost Android phones and low-cost tablets. So what we really are trying to build evidence around right now is how we can bring these solutions to scale through these multimodal approaches and wondering where you think about these approaches. Thank you, Honey. Tom, w one question. Out of all that work that Honey make reference to, what papers come to mind? What research come to mind like that you really is like, oh, this was the paper that really convinced me this could work very well? I think you've already mentioned one of my favorite ones, which, which triggered my interest in, in digital personalized learning, but also my, my curiosity about it. And that, that's the MindSpark paper as a seminal one. And I think that the important thing to, to realize with that particular one is yes, it absolutely had an impact on learning outcomes, but it was a, a solution that was delivered outside school hours. So, so not only was digital personalized learning tool involved. But at the same time, we're actually adding on extra hours to the school day. So in, in some respects, it's, it's actually quite natural that we expect to see higher learning outcomes. And so I think that triggered in me a real fascination to better unpack some of the, uh, the contextual elements around the delivery of digital personalized learning. And that's why I think the meta-analysis that, that Hani has mentioned is really interesting because it picks out 16 different studies. Now, the reason that I'm interested in that is because there are so few studies that have been finalized in lower and middle income countries around the use of digital personalized learning. And that meta-analysis picks up those, those 16 there. Within that, we mentioned the, the MindSpark piece. But the other one that I, I found particularly interesting was one by uh, Nicola Pitchford looking at, at 1 billion in Malawi. This is an, an intervention that uses tablets to deliver a, a, a personalized learning experience for children. I find this one particularly interesting because it's a very specific type of personalized learning. When individuals use the 1 billion tablets, each time they engage with the tablet, they go through an individual learning assessment. And so they actually have a learning experience delivered based on that assessment at the start of their engagement with the tablet. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because that differs from other digital personalized learning tools. Say, for example, I do, which is, is the one that Hardy mentioned we're testing in Kenya, where every time a user engages with the, the platform, the platform collects data and is able to even further personalize their learning experience. And so I think, I know I haven't explicitly answered your question. I've mentioned the meta-analysis. I've mentioned MindSpark and I've mentioned Pitchford's article on Malawi. But what I really look for is, is articles that are really digging into the nuances around the implementation approach and the square types. And I think they're ones that I'm particularly interested in. Unfortunately, to date, there are not so many in that space, but we're hoping to see more of them start to emerge in, in the coming months. Thank you, Tom. No, I think it was very interesting. And I also saw the, your push to go back to the meta-analysis. I think meta-analysis are great to, to summarize a lot of the research, but I also 
tend to think that they tend to hide the most interesting parts of, of, of very good papers. So that's why I think it's great also to encourage people who are listening to this to look into and to read some of, the, of those papers in those meta-analyses, some of the papers that we will be mentioning. Right now, what we find is that we don't have much evidence about implementation challenges that are specific to digital personalized learning. So we have knowledge about implementation challenges in other edtech solutions. But truly adaptive DPL solutions can be really expensive to scale, so we really need to know more. And so I'm interested to read UNICEF's upcoming work on implementation of DPL solutions. And also, sorry for the shameless plug, uh, but the World Bank and EdTech Hub are also working together on analyzing qualitative findings from implementing Alex in the Dominican Republic. And this piece so far is helping uncover some challenges related to DPL implementation by focusing on the experience of teachers and other educational personnel. So I'm really interested in the work coming out around implementation. Diego, on that, I think this podcast is the official launch and discussion external to the bank of two impact evaluations that you have been working on for the last two years, one that went very well, another one that didn't go that well, in, in my opinion. But I want to ask you, can you describe what you have been doing on these impact evaluations in Ecuador, what the levels are, what you guys were trying to do, and what the findings were? This is very interesting, Tom and Honey. This is work that hasn't seen the, the, the light outside the bank yet, but that I'm sure will bring a lot of attention, and I'm sure it will be published in a very good journal. Diego, over to you, please. Thanks, Juan. The Ecuadorians got excited about some of the findings that we showed from Dominican Republic. We had two projects, investment projects, open in Ecuador. One project in basic education and one project in higher education to provide digital adaptive learning with slightly different purposes. Those on basic education were to promote teaching at the right level and to try to curtail a big dropout rate that would occur when students move from 7th to 8th grade, which is kind of the finishing of lower secondary and transition to upper secondary in Ecuador, and where we see high rates of dropout. The second one was for first-year college students into technical institutions, the students who have or enter post-secondary technical education with lots of gaps in math and reading, and many of them drop before they finish their first year, there is not systematic remediation mechanism to really level up their skills, especially on math and reading. So we took these approaches. We used a vendor called Alex, which focuses on math. And it's a very popular vendor providing a math curriculum. In the two cases, the process was roughly the same. Teachers agreed on the curricula or the competencies that would be developed. So Alex says has a list of curricular competencies, and you can choose from the menus. From the seventh grade intervention, I took the, the curricula of Ecuador, and we tried to match the curricular contents of the curricula in Ecuador with those of Alex. And then for higher education, it was a little bit more complex. The teachers would select the curricular contents based on the requirements for the particular career. So let me, let me start with the basic education one. So the idea of the design was to bring students to labs and then have them practice Alex for an hour or two every week. It was going to be complementary from classes. Well, COVID hit. We already had made the purchases of the licenses and we had to give those licenses to students. We gave the licenses to students, these seventh grade students, 
and the teachers, as they were trying to cope with the pandemic and they were trying to do some type of online instruction, they were encouraging students to use the platform. The role of the teacher or the pedagogy model behind was a little bit improvised because of those two changes. I think we had some type of limited engagement of the students. We set up this in a, in a large sample of the scores. It was randomized. And what we did at the end of the intervention was to apply an independent test in mathematics and then to see if the students who had a benefit from the platform would have had best results in those mathematics tests. So in basic education, we got a zero effect of using the platform. The channels through which learning would occur when at the right level may have been distorted. They did a revised curricula during COVID before giving the licenses. Then the pedagogical model did not exist. The kids would have to do it with very little support from teachers or from parents. And maybe that kind of led to low, low engagement. The impact there was zero from using the platform between the treatment and the control group. Now, in higher education was a bit different. These are older kids. Most of them are kids that, in a way, are used to studying and learning at the same time. These are kids from technical universities. Most of them study and work. They are more mature. They have kind of more levels of independence. And also, this was a booster. They continued to receive their classes if they were mechanics on mechanics, if they were engineers on engineering. And this was given as a booster, as a remediation program. It was not a substitute or a complement for the math. It was a, a booster in a way trying to remediate their math competencies. So what we showed in Ecuador is that despite some box intake up rates, so not all kids use the platform and not all of them used it the time recommended. But despite so, we did find through independent tests that they did better. The six month access to the platform in a way remediated the equivalent of a year, year and a half gap in mathematics. That was quite successful, consistent to the India results. But not only that, we also found out that the students who had access to the platform displayed better progression rates into the next semesters. So they would not repeat class. And that effect was stronger for males. And why is that? Because more males are enrolled in programs that have heavy content in mathematics, especially related to technical fields of engineering. Thus, we were able to scale this out quickly. We were able to provide a remediation to all first-year students. When we did the impact evaluation, we did to half of the institutes, but the following year, we gave this remedial program to all first-year students. So it proved that you can scale up this quickly, and it really helped professors also to segment and to get to know better their student population because the software would provide an assessment at the origin so teachers would be able to see the competence of their students and to give more attention to those with highest gaps. And also based on other surveys, we actually found out that students who have access to the platform are more, more motivated, more proficient in math now. And also some of them reported having been able to study independently more after using Alex. So it really trickled into spillover effects, also in their capacity to do independent self-paced learning. Thank you, Diego. I think just one follow-up question. When is this magnificent set of papers going to see the, the light of the outside world? What are you guys thinking in terms of publication or dissemination? We have a two draft working paper. So the first thing is we are going to pass these papers into a shape of a working paper. And then uh, 
hopefully that will happen in the next months or two. So stay tuned. Thank you, Diego. Back to the colleagues from the EdTech Hub, Tom and Honey. You see things that are coming up, many, many different uh, research projects, papers that will capture lots of these lessons. Tell me one or two things that will be coming up in the next year or so. Yeah, sure. So I think there are a few pieces. And as it was highlighted earlier, we don't know enough about some challenges faced during implementation. And I think part of this is because evidence has shown us that there are a lot of uh, internal evaluations conducted by personalized product creators or edtech providers don't include that. So I'm really interested to see this upcoming piece by UNICEF around implementation. And I know right now the UNICEF executive summary has come out on trends in digital personalized learning. So that's where I was gauging what I was saying about the lack of available public evaluations. Thank you, honey. Tom, any other examples? Yeah, look, we, we've actually got a suite of products coming out or a suite of studies in commission at the moment at the EdTech Hub. And, and I'm excited to, to see all of these begin to, to be released. We, we alluded to one earlier, which is a partnership with IDU at an organization in Kenya called WORK, which stands for Women's Educational Research in Kenya. There we're investigating through a combination of design-based implementation search and randomized controlled trials, how digital personalized learning can be implemented most effectively looking at, at a number of different factors to dig in into the effective implementation, such as what, what are the results for, for different genders and different age groups. We're also going to be doing a bit of a look at the cost-effectiveness of the implementation. There, there will also be a second study, which I'm, I'm really excited about, which moves away from the implementation element and starts to look at the, the algorithm behind the, the digital personalized learning tool there and assesses whether and how content is being delivered to, to learners to meet them at their, their proximal level of learning. What we're trying to really do with adaptive learning tools or digital personalized learning tools is to find ways in which content can be delivered to the, the learner at their proximal level of learning. And what I mean by that is, is we want to get there. We want to get content and learning experiences delivered to learners in and around the edge of their current level of knowledge. Now, that current level of knowledge might be for, for a very early grade student, a single digit um, addition. For a more advanced student, and if we're talking about mathematics, it might be around long division or, or it, might, it might get into the sciences or, or other subjects. And so when, when we're talking about digital personalized learning, the algorithm piece around how we make sure that we, we get content to learners at that proximal level is really, really important. And so I'm, that's why I'm excited about this study with, with IDU in Kenya to really look under the hood of the algorithms and sort the content that learners have access to. The other thing is, is to discuss a little bit of what we would like to see more. For example, I would like to see more research on adaptive learning in, in, in earlier grades, in literacy in particular. I think that one is a little bit harder to crack. I fully agree with this point, Tom, that you made about how some of the interventions, especially in the RCTs, are probably capturing two things. Not only the adaptability of a form, but the fact that kids or youth are getting one or two more hours of math or whatever other subject in the interventions. I haven't seen like a clear research on that. Is it like the extra time or, or is it really the adaptability of the platform, right? So, so I think that is, to me, one of the things. Diego, what are, very quickly, one or two things that you would like to see more in terms of research in this area? 
things one on reading. There's a lot of gaps in literacy, so so more evidence of what works and what softwares are out there to remediate literacy gaps be would be great. And and also I think it, it has a lot of potential for remediation in higher education. Right now there's a big emphasis on basic. It's important to of course to address gaps early, but there's a stock of people with gaps. So how can we use these softwares both for higher education, but also for adult learning, especially given that there are big gaps in math and literacy in the adult workforce? Thank you, Diego. Tom, if you had like $10 million right now, what kind of research would the EdTech Hub would like to do? So I'm, I'm going to speak personally and not on behalf of the whole of the EdTech Hub. I, I, I think some of my colleagues will agree with what I'll say, but I'm really interested in how we integrate these tools into high quality in-class learning experiences for students. So when you and Diego were, were talking about what interested you about DPL and how you first got involved in this topic. For me, I was really fascinated by the, the potential for digital personalized learning to support student learning in contexts where, where teacher capacity is low. So particularly a teacher capacity around pedagogy, which, which Hardy mentioned earlier, and the ability to, to deliver differentiated learning to students, but also teacher subject knowledge. And I think, I think these platforms have, have a real role to play in supporting, uh, particularly in these environments. And I think the work that Diego has already outlined is, is a really brilliant step towards that. But I think what we're often seeing is that these, these tools are being used as complementary to basic education. They're not being embedded and integrated into classrooms. And so what that requires is for us to look really in a lot of depth at how teachers can best integrate them into their pedagogical approaches. Because it, it, it can be, I don't want to be flippant, but it can be relatively easy to, to give a child access to a device outside of a classroom. But what is far more complex is thinking how children can actually utilize that device and that DPL tool within a broader classroom environment where a teacher is attempting to deliver lessons as part of a, a well-developed national curriculum. And so I think that that implementation approach and how to integrate DPL into classroom is, for want of a better term, a nut we haven't cracked yet. And I'd really love to see more research in that space. What are the, the missed opportunities of this technology? One of the, the ones that I've been trying to focus is how to process so much data that is collected to really support and integrate this work in the work of teachers. A little bit of what you were saying, Tom, but very limited to data. What other opportunities are we missing when we're trying to, to support countries, learn how to implement and, and work with this type of technology? I think it's linked to what you were talking about with the, with the data being a missed opportunity, but I'll, I'll be a little bit more specific and say, I think there's a lot of value to be added in the assessment space. And here I really want to differentiate formative assessment. So where teachers are, are assessing students in a low stakes way to understand where they're at from summative assessments, which are generally those, those high stakes assessments, which might relate to transition from high school into university, for example. And so I think there's a really great opportunity for digital personalized learning tools to collect a lot of really interesting data that can then be used to, to support teachers in their formative assessment of students and help them both in terms of the content they access on the digital personalized learning tool, but also in terms of that, that wraparound educational experience that, that the teacher is bringing to the students in the classroom more broadly outside of the app. That's probably the missed opportunity. What I will do at the same time, though, is say all of that with a hint of caution. These tools and educational technology more broadly collect vast amounts of data. 
And in a lot of the countries in which we're operating, particularly those in, in lower and middle income countries, we find that the online safety elements are not as mature in terms of the policies and the protections for students to mitigate against things like cyberbullying and child exploitation. And so I think when we think about how we can best use the data generated through these tools, we also, at the same time, must equally think about how we protect the rights of the students and keep them safe. Thank you, Tom. So just adding on to what was said, because the tech component is just one part of it, and especially if you're talking about interventions running at the school level, because teachers play a pivotal role in enhancing personalization. So while there is a lot of data available to different extents on DPL platform, my question is, are teachers equipped to use this data? So there's one part around the teacher usage of that data, and I think another part around a missed opportunity is at present, many platforms self-identify as digital personalized learning tools, and there's little standardization of what that means. I'm finding that the missed opportunity is really at the government level as well, because governments can experience challenges in making procurement decisions because of this lack of standardization. So I'm interested to see how we can standardize this, or at least support governments in making these decisions related to procurement. Diego, miss opportunity. I think a miss opportunity or an opportunity is to embed these tools, these artificial intelligent features into digital learning as a whole. We all know that digital learning is boomy, but the attritions are really striking. So if you go to Coursera or these type of platforms, for every hundred people who enrolled, only five or four finish. So there should be these AI tools trying to assess and guide learners. So before you get into the platform, there should be an assessment. Where are you? What courses are you ready to take? And then this AI should guide the learner into the different courses. Because what I'm seeing is that learners are very ambitious and they go to a course that they are not academically ready or capable of continuing. So I would say that that's kind of a feature that should be really embedded as a core on digital learning platforms that are emerging globally. Thank you, Diego. A few reflections from this discussion is there are robust evidence on the impact of digital personalized learning or adaptive learning. There are some exciting developments in terms of research and the impacts. I'm looking more at the implementation angle of this technology. We agree that there is still a lot to learn, especially with regards to how this technology can be more integrated into the day-to-day work of teachers. For example, in the Dominican Republic, the work is an activity that is done within the school hour, but it is not the math class. We already start seeing like behavioral responses from teachers in terms of how they organize their class. So in one way or another, the use of the technology outside the class ends up impacting the class and making teachers adjust the pedagogy in very different ways. The other, the other lesson is that we really need to be conscious and be very structured and proactive on reminding and supporting governments on the digital security of data, copyrights, the ownership of data to ensure security of children and teachers and, and everyone. The research in this area is very exciting. There are also work that we know of coming from the Education Commission, from UNICEF, as Hani mentioned, the research papers that we're getting out from the Dominican Republic that I didn't talk much, but that we will have two papers as well coming out soon, plus the very exciting papers that Diego mentioned in his remarks. 
So all this really makes the work in this area very exciting, not only for the research angle, but in particular for the implementation of programs to really try to help governments accelerate the rate at which children learn the different subjects. So thank you everyone and thanks for being here.